0: This week, it's a topic that, uh, as you will know, is, is close to my interests, and so I was particularly pleased that Dr. Tama- Tamaki um, accepted our invitation to come today. He's written widely about um, Japan's relations with East Asia. Um, He got a Master's and Doctorate um, in the International Relations Department at Aberystwyth University. Uh, He went on from there to spend a little time at ICU, um, a year or so at Plymouth University before moving in 2007 to where he is now, um, in what was, until this summer, uh, the Department of
1: Politics, history, and international relations. It's an eclectic <laughs> mix.
0: Yes. Um, which, apparently, uh, no longer exists anymore because uh, structural change has moved it on. Anyway, um, as I say, he's worked <laughs> widely on uh, Japan's relations to to East Asia, and today he's uh, making a presentation about one specific part of that, which is Japan's relation to China. So. We may to see you and look forward to hearing
1: what you have to say. Thank you very much, Professor Neary. It's uh, my great pleasure and really um, my honour to be here, to be able to present amongst the very interesting mix of uh, topics that has been covered at the Institute so far. Um, As you can see, I'm from the business school, Loughborough Business School, but my specialism is in international politics slash international relations. Um, I have been trained more or less as an international relations theorist, but I also use... Asia-Pacific, East Asia uh, Japanese foreign policy as a sort of a platform for applying theoretical approaches, theoretical ways of thinking uh, about various aspects of the international politics of the Asia-Pacific region. And as Professor Neely ha- has, uh, has mentioned, my work up to now has so far been about mainly about Japanese foreign policy, but it's also about... Japan's relations with East Asia, or Japan's relations with its most immediate neighbors. And not just uh, unraveling some of the the things that are happening between Japan and its Asian neighbors, but I'm very much interested in the role of Japanese identity, how Japanese polices tend to look at themselves, the kind of images they have of themselves, and also of the images they might have of Asia as a neighborhood. Um, um, So today, I want to talk about the downward spiral of Japan's relations with China, but it's, it's not so much that I have something new to say about the relationship as such. It's not as if I have new, if new sort of findings or new events that are coming up, although I know APEC will be starting very soon. Actually, I think some of the preliminary talks have started already and the latest news and uh, you know, the people are looking at whether there will be a talk between Abe Shinzo and Xi Jinping uh, next week. I think lately um, I think it was only today or yesterday that the Japanese government publicly came out saying that there are plans to for the two to meet sometime uh, between the 10th or the 11th when they have the economic leaders meeting in Beijing So there are quite a few things people are looking at and there are talk about the thawing in in relations between Japan and China, which I will go into uh, at the very end. Uh, But my main concern right now, again, it's not so much to see what new events or new findings we can find from Japanese foreign policy towards China today, but it's really about uh, exploring some of the various ways of thinking about the downward spiral since especially the summer of 2012. And This is really a work in progress and you will find that there are quite a few crude elements to it. Um, There are quite a few things that still need to be worked out. Um, But the aim for me uh, tonight is to really look forward to the the various feedback that you might have uh, at the end. Um, As I said, this is really uh, very much part of of Japan's relations with Asia Pacific and how I tend to sort of focus on Japan's images that they have of themselves and conversely of the images they might have of Asia and this really um, was partly inspired by the flare up in the territorial disputes between Japan and China since the summer of 2012. Um, My current project explores Japan's images of Asia and especially in uh, diplomatic um, and foreign policy narratives as seen through the official narratives of foreign policy. Um, to that effect, I'm very much interested in how Japanese foreign policy makers reify Asia into a notional entity that denotes both an opportunity as well as a threat. And if you look at the various discourses, various narratives that are coming out of Tokyo and especially the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, not to mention the Prime Minister and other policy makers, you do get to see this dichotomy um, between on the one hand treating Asia and main part of Asia in Japanese foreign policy discourse is China and China is an important aspect of Japanese foreign policy and there is a narrative that looks at Asia and China in particular as an opportunity. Obviously China is Japan's major trading partner so it has to be an opportunity but also there is a sense that Asia also means threat and in a sense, China is a physical manifestation of that. It's a sort of reality that it, that the Japanese foreign policy elites seem to encounter today. And throughout this project, I am often struck by how should I say the parallels between the narratives of threat today, on the one hand, with the similar-sounding worldviews that um, shared by the policy elites at the turn of the previous century. Now, I'm not saying that they are identical, but I think there are quite a few parallels. It's almost like Mark Twain saying that history never repeats itself, but it certainly rhymes. And I think there are quite a few rhymes between what's happening today and what has been happening since um, at the, uh, the turn of the last century, when many uh, within the Japanese foreign policy circles felt that Japan was under siege from hostile China, hostile, well, not so much hostile China as weak China, weak Korea, hostile Russia and hostile Western powers <coughs> are the kind of policy pronouncements that we might have seen back in the 1890s and into the, uh, the 20th century. As I said, we are not necessarily seeing the replay of that era, but the kind of things we're hearing, um, seems to, there seems to be parallels to that. And this current project is also driven by my curiosity in trying to appreciate, if not to understand, the reality, as it were, of Japan's Asia experience. Now, at the same time, another part of the inspiration um, came from my work in international relations or IR theorizing. To me, and speaking... Partly as an IR theorist, uh, much of the existing literature on Japanese foreign policy as well as Japan's relations with Asia seems to center on the idea that everything is driven by national interests. Now, I'm not trying to sort of come up with a horrendously outlandish uh, counter argument that no, it's not about national interests. I think national interests are definitely important. Um, and I guess there's nothing inherently wrong with looking at national, aden- national interests, identifying them in order to understand Japan's position and why Japan is behaving the way they are behaving. And I can readily appreciate that national interests do play a crucial role in the way Japanese government formulates foreign policy. One can see, for instance, that being a US ally is in Japan's national interests. It satisfies um, Japan's security concerns. Or maintaining good relations with China is in Japan's national interest. It's another element of Japan's national interest. Also, maintaining good relations with Southeast Asia is in Japan's national interest. And especially today, uh, with respect to uh, in the following the the flare up in the territorial disputes, Southeast Asia is again uh, being seen almost as a hedge against the kind of things that could go wrong uh, in Japan's relations with China. And when the history card is used against Japan, again, mainly by China in the so-called PR battle uh, over the past several months, um, it it is in Tokyo's interest to rebut the claim. So many things, I think, can be explained by national interest. And I'm not saying that these are wrong as such. But part of me also wants to look at the language being used by policymakers. Um, also, another part of me wants to understand, for a lack of better term, the psychological landscape within the foreign policy circles. Again, it's one thing to simply look at Japan's relations with uh, with China and try to unravel where, the, where Japan's national interests come from. I think it's also very interesting, um, at least personally, to see what kind of realities that foreign policymakers feel they are encountering, what kind of images um, sort of derive out of their relations or in their, in their interactions with their Chinese counterparts, with all other uh, counterparts from the rest of Asia. And there is this interest I have in the idea of Asia and China, for that matter, within the elite discourse. So I have been looking into some of the historical narratives of Japan's, uh, how Japan, Japanese foreign policy elites, as well as ideologues, in the, especially in the early 20th, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, seemed uh, sort of imaged or narrated Asia as such. And if I want to combine this kind of issue, these kind of issues with IR, with the, you know IR, I take an approach that languages and symbols are need to be taken very serious, and I want to apply that to the existing IR ways of thinking. This is why I follow a particular theoretical approach called constructivism, and I'm don't think I need, I'm not going to explain what constructivism is or this is or that wasn't in AI. I mean, this is not really the point of this talk and I know uh, many of you have different backgrounds. I'm not going to bore you with the, the theoretical bits tonight but um, suffice to say this theoretical approach is usually used to explain um, instances of international cooperation. Um, if you if you are familiar with international relations theorizing, they tend to be as abstract at times. But constructivism, I think, is increasingly being used to explain instances of cooperation. But I also feel that this theory can help us to explain instances of conflict. And I think uh, the Sino-Japanese conflict is a perfect example of how um, the, the processes of socialization uh, engenders a kind of conflictual situation and not just uh, brings about cooperation and given constructivism social theory uh, pedigree and again I'm not going to go into the social theory bits and pieces here tonight because i could easily take away from the core of what I want to say Um, however I do see no reason why it cannot explain hostile behavior just as it is extensively used to explain uh, friendship So the aim of this paper is to look mainly at the downward spiral of Japanese uh, relations since the summer of Sino-Japanese relations since the summer of 2012 and see if we can identify a sense that the processes of socialization might, in fact, be facilitating this downward spiral. In other words, I want to explore particular ways of thinking about the current Sino-Japanese downward spiral, again, mainly from the Japanese perspective. So the first part provides a brief outline of my theoretical concerns i hope i do not have to sort of bore you with the theoretical nitty-gritties but i also think it important for me to set up my sort of framework for analysis secondly i will also want to sort of set out both the japanese and to an extent the chinese sides of the story with more emphasis on the japanese side the kind of things they say and the kind of the things we can use to understand the sort of the psychological landscape that the japanese foreign policy makers seem to Uh, occupy themselves. And then, thirdly, I shall briefly discuss what we see, uh, what we can sort of garner from this exchange of symbolism, signifiers, and again, uh, the mutual finger-pointing, as as we will see later. And finally, I shall again very briefly discuss the limits of my current approach. As I said, this is a work in progress and I'm very much looking forward to the inputs uh, from you afterwards and I'd like to sort of discuss some of the limits to my current research as such. So again, without going too much into the detail of sort of theoretical nitty-gritties, my main concern in this talk is, again, is to think loudly, uh, as it were, too, about the ways of thinking about the downward spiral in Tokyo's relations with Beijing. And here I want to explore whether the mutual skepticism, if you could call it that, between Japan and China constitutes some kind of a, how should I say, modus operandi, as it were, of bilateral relations today. Put differently, um, I am beginning to think that the sensitive, difficult, and now rather acrimonious, if not caustic, relationship is really a reality that the 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 policy elites in Tokyo and perhaps to an extent policy uh, makers in Beijing think they encounter, the thing that is really that sort of defines the bilateral relations today. Now of course every conflict is, you know, is every bit man made as it were, and that if Tokyo and Beijing want to undo it, then I guess there's nothing to stop them from doing that. Um but of course the problem is that even if they do want to undo some of the downward spiral, they seem to get back into this. Now this this thought the sort of it's all much talked about um Uh, Summit between the two leaders uh, next week, notwithstanding, uh, again, there's no guarantee that they will actually meet and have a fruitful discussion. Um, By this, I simply mean mean the obvious. In a sense, that diplomacy is a human action, or it's a human interaction, as it were. How the policymakers in Tokyo decide to act towards China is every bit artificial in that sense. There's nothing predetermined about the way they go about it. They might say, well, of course, you know, if you've talked to foreign policymakers, makers, you know, bureaucrats, and so on, and so on, so we have this national interest, and that prompts us to act in a particular way. But if you take a step back, it is very much a social interaction. There's nothing predetermined about that. So it is artificial in a sense that there is nothing predetermined about the way Tokyo responds to purported provocations from China. And even if Tokyo thinks that Beijing is the one being provocative, China's actions are, to a larger extent, um, their reaction to Japanese actions. So in short, diplomatic exchange is tantamount to a quid pro quo or verbal exchange. And again, we could we could almost get into a sort of a chicken or the egg analogy here. And I'm not really trying to sort of say who is at fault here. What what really matters is that both Tokyo and China think that the other is at fault, when in fact it's very much part and parcel of the continuing uh, exchange of, of invectives in some way, shape, or some way, shape or form. So my point here is that the fact that the Japanese government thinks it is unable to get out of this mess, mess for both internal and domestic reasons. Um, you know, we could might be even we might even be able to call it a figment of the ministry of foreign affairs' imagination, as it were. Uh, but that figment of imagination has come to constitute an irrevocable reality for foreign policy elites, uh, that Tokyo and, they, and the policymakers in Tokyo think that they have really no choice but to address. They are stuck. They feel they're stuck in it, and therefore they need to figure out what the national interests are. The crucial element here is that Tokyo thinks that Chinese provocations will continue for some time. It sounds as if they, uh, they think it will continue for some time. And this assumption poses a form of reality for Tokyo uh, to contend with. Again, the, uh, the purported again, uh, summit next week notwithstanding. Now, some people might wonder at this point, well, what about national interests? Um, True, I think much of what goes on between Japan and China can be summed up in two words, national interests. For instance, we can easily ask questions such as, what motivated the Japanese government to nationalize the Senkakus? Or we could ask questions like, what what makes the Chinese government to risk actual physical confrontation by the provocative behavior, quote, unquote? Or why does the Japanese government think that increasing defense budget is a good thing? And you know, for all these questions, the answer could be simple, national interests. Now, the idea of national interest, I think, is a useful, useful term, and I think national interest is a useful thing. It can explain just about everything Japan does. It can do so to the extent that we don't need to identify what Japanese interests are until we see it. Whatever Tokyo does must be in its interest. And how do we know that Tokyo's actions constitute Japanese national interest? Well, the fact that Tokyo did something must mean that it is an interest. So the national interest as a sort of a term is a useful, one, but it gets us into this sort of circular argument. And the story goes around in circles. The thing about national interest is that it black boxes people's ideas. After all, saying that an action is in Tokyo's interest means that we might as well forget what, is going, what might be going on inside Abe Shinzo's head, not that we'd really want to find out. Now, we might not want to see that, uh, but it sort of should provide an interesting insight into what makes them do such stupid things as visiting Yasukuni in the middle of all this, for instance. If we are to believe that Abe is still very much rational, some might have a big question mark over that, then there must be a way for Abe to justify his actions. Again, I'm not trying to sort of justify his actions or not. There must be a way for him to justify it, despite the potentials for further conflict. And the problem for me, at least, is that the phrase national interest does not help me to do this. It does not really help me to explore the psychological landscape, however horrific it might look um, in terms of if we try to unravel the psychological, Abe's psychological landscape. Um, We we only sort of end up in a vicious circle of, well, national interest actions, national interest actions, and it doesn't really help me look into the kind of the world views that the policy elites tend, might, might share. Um, and if we are to concern ourselves with the mechanism behind the manifestation of downward spirals, invoking national interest might not be enough. And this is why I like to approach Sino-Japanese relations, again, as a a sort of form of a macro-level social sphere in which meanings and symbols matter. And it helps us to look into or try to second guess, as it were, what might be going on in the minds of some of the policy elites in Tokyo as well as Beijing. Just as human interaction entails exchange of meanings and symbols, I think we can use this framework to discuss diplomatic relations as well. I mean, it is rather obvious in a sense, but after all, diplomacy is about human attraction, albeit at a macro level. So when you hear a hostile signal from Tokyo, we elicit a hostile response from Beijing. And when Tokyo sends out a signal, what it's seen, what it it thinks as a friendly gesture, but nevertheless meets a hostile reaction from Beijing, in the minds of the Tokyo policymakers, um, Beijing's reaction is one of surprise or maybe even anger, And that might help us to explain why there is that mechanism of downward spiral. And this is the sort of social dynamic that seems to be prevailing in the current downward spiral of Japan's relations with China. Now again, I don't want to bore you with the, with the theoretical bits um, further, Uh, but this approach is known as constructivism in international relations but I shall, again, I shall not go into too much of it. Uh, Suffice to say, this approach allows us to delve into things like the identity politics that might exist between Japan and China. There's a burgeoning literature looking at uh, the various identity politics sort of na- how national identities sort of seep into foreign policy seep into mutual images and mutual misunderstandings between Japan and China for instance uh, we can also look into what i call the politics of memory and its significance if we want to understand why sino-japanese relations tend to center on the history bit we might need to go into the more the social identity-type elements before we get to say, well, national interest. It's it's all very well for for us to say that, well, it's it's in Japanese national interest to whitewash history. You have to ask the question, is it really whitewashing, or is there domestic um, politics involved in all this? There's definitely that. We won't be able to answer that question if we simply stick with national interest, because it doesn't really allow us to delve into that bit. And how and why symbolism, such as, again, Yasukuni visits, uh, matter in Sino-Japanese relations? Again, it's not something that we can simply explain through national interest. So other than making the story of Japan's relations with China more interesting, I think this approach allows us to delve into things that really matter to the study of Sino-Japanese relations. as I said before, um, there is a tendency for this particular approach to focus more on the cooperation. For instance, there is a burgeoning literature within IR constructivism that looks at how the European Union came about and how it's evolving, or how the so-called nuclear taboo, the, the, tab- sort, of a, the, the mut- sort of shared understanding within the international community that nuclear first use is not something that states want to, want to do, there seems to be that norm emerging. And closer to home, as it were, there is sort of a again, a burgeoning, almost a cottage industry within sort of um, the international politics of Southeast Asia and ASEAN in in debating whether ASEAN is a a successful organization or not. And one of the counter arguments to those who say that, well, ASEAN is simply a talking shop, is to say that, well, ASEAN has been around for more than 40 years and that it has been very successful in in promoting or putting human rights issues onto the agenda. And this sense of community building is very much um, the, sort of the, the hallmark of uh, ASEAN's success. So put another way, constructivism in international relations tend to focus on how friendship emerge, but less so on how hostilities tend to manifest in and of itself. So in a nutshell, uh, this approach tends to focus on the good news in international politics and less so on the bad news. And looking at the, the literature on constructivism and social theory and so forth and so on, there's nothing to suggest that these types of approaches can explain the bad news in international politics. And this is the kind of thing I want to explore. And I thought, looking at the Sino-Japanese relations today is exactly a very good example of how the socialization process begets bad news, which then begets further downward spiral, begetting bad news, often and so on. And this is really um, the the project that I am engaged in, or part of the, the larger project that I'm engaged in. And this is the kind of thing I want to explore in my in the paper and that I'm working on. So the question is, can we actually do this? So how then do I explain the downward spiral in Sino-Japanese relations? Again, it is tempting to suggest that national interests are at play. Just as I have mentioned before, if we ask questions as why did the Japanese government nationalize Senkakus or why did the Chinese government react so badly to this, what is the, what, what is really preventing both sides from coming together, What's re, what has prevented the thawing from taking place until now, uh, more than two years later, well, if you want to sort of push back the, the, the the roots of all this issue way before, way before 2012 or 2008 or whatever. Or why did it take until now for the leaders to sort of decide that, well, actually, we do need to talk? National interests, you know, sometimes tend to provide a catch-all phrase. As I said, I'm not rejecting national interests, but before we even get to talk about national interests, I think it's crucial that we try to understand the, um, the, the psychological landscape that sort of not so much encourages, but almost forces uh, policymakers to go down the downward spiral. And here, in the sort of again, trying to understand the, the, uh, the psychological landscape um, sort of provides a key to understanding the downward spiral. So in order for us to see uh, that the way the two sides are behaving really confines them into a downward spiral, I think we need to see some of the pronouncements coming from them. So I want to start out with the Japanese side of the story. And I'm sure many of you are more than familiar with uh, the kind of things that have been uh, been said. Um, But from the Japanese government's point of view, there seems to be a palpable sense that the Chinese government is determined to misconstrue Tokyo's position. Now, to be sure, nervousness surrounding Chinese maritime activities in the East China Sea is nothing new. Indeed, we can argue that the latest Senkaku dispute is really an extension of earlier disputes, such as the ramming of Japanese coast guard vessel by a Chinese fishing boat back in April 2012. In its its, uh, 2011 position paper, the Japanese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, or MOFA, argues that Tokyo has been monitoring Chinese activities since 2008. And if you look at some of the... The policy pronouncements and policy documents and publications like the Diplomatic Blue Book, the Defense White Paper, there, has, there, has, there have always been some kind of um, anxiety about the, the balance of power in, in, the, in East Asia and there were references, not so much references to, uh, to China, but there were sort of inferences. But it's only around 2006, 2007, and 2008 that we've started seeing China um, explicitly. So when the position paper says again that, the to- that Tokyo has been monitoring Chinese activities since 2008, that's really when I think the, the policy elites' sort of world views have changed a little to sort of saying that, well, maybe we are living in a dangerous neighborhood. And that, for them, constructs a very much uh, framework of understanding framework for sort of as the world view and it's for them that's the reality it seems that the dangerous neighborhood is here to say and this is the reality that we the Japanese government need to need to deal with now the national institute of defense studies affiliated to the ministry of defense felt compelled to compile an annual china security report in 2011 um, Precisely because they felt threatened, they thought, "Well, Japan is facing this threat of rising China, arguing that China's rising military capability is a cause for concern, especially China's sort of uncompromising attitude." What they say was, "He dakyo na tai uh, tai them so it's very explicit in what needs which is not really directly in the Ministry of Defense, but is closely affiliated to it, uh, felt. Well, this uncompromising attitude really compels Japan to think hard about what China means for Japan's existence and in another publication that came out in 2011 uh, again National Institute was of China's assertive attitude in East China Sea so there seems to be an emerging sense that China's hostility is a reality to be content with so there is a sense that China is flexing its muscles at least in the in a in Tokyo and Japan is wondering why this is happening. There seems to be an element of surprise here. And the logical conclusion from this is for the Tokyo government to think that China has something to hide. For them, Tokyo has been very explicit about what its intentions are, pacifism, softness, and so on, and yet they are seeing China flexing its muscles. It thinks, it thinks, what on earth is China doing? And after all, if you are not sure of the other three intentions, then you try to prepare for the worst. Now if you juxtapose this on to the sense that Tokyo felt it really had no choice but to nationalize the Senkakus in order to forestall an even more unpalatable prospect of a nationalist in the form of Ishara Shintaro, and let's face it, someone with very unsavory anti-Chinese sentiments, among other things, from stoking Chinese anger, it is not really surprising that the Japanese government felt that the nationalization was the best-case scenario. But true, there seems to be an indication that MOFA misread Chinese intentions. There had been some sort of conversation going on prior to the nationalization um, that Mofao sort of sent out a feeder to the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, or MFA, asking, what, what would you do if we nationalize Senkaku, so and so on. They seemed, to have, they seemed to have gotten, they felt they got a sort of a green light, as it were. But in fact, they didn't. Uh, there seems to be some kind of a misunderstanding that fit into uh, the Prime Minister's office. And therefore, the Prime Minister, obviously, at that time was Noda, um, his DPJ, Abe's DPJ predecessor. But nevertheless, there seems to have been some kind of a misunderstanding on the part of MOFA. Uh, it might have turned out to be a costly mistake on their part. Um, be as it may, Tokyo did feel that the Chinese reaction was way over the top. Especially after, this, they, after they misunderstood China's intentions or China's sort of acquiescence, as it were, uh, China's reaction um, was, felt, Tokyo felt that China's reaction was way over the top. And this is the crucial thing about the emergence of a downward spiral. Now, what I mean by this is that Tokyo felt that nationalization was the most rational thing to do given the difficult situation. Perhaps Tokyo felt that it was doing China a favor by preempting Ishihara. After all, nationalisation sounds more palatable, perhaps, to the Chinese public than Beijing having have to explain that a nationalist firebrand, or I say a bigot, purchasing them. And as such, it seems as if Tokyo was taken aback by the Chinese reaction to it. Now, indeed, Moffa's position paper of November 2012 seems to indicate Tokyo's growing frustration with the Chinese reaction. In it, Moffa points out that you know points out all of the contribution made by the Japanese government. Um, throughout decades of this relationship, quoting the $45 trillion investment through the ODA to Tokyo's support in China's accession to WTA, and so forth and so on. Uh, What we see, the flip side of this frustration, is to say that MOFA is depicting China as being ungrateful, and they're wondering why they're being so. And another position paper in February 2013 accuses China of seeking to change the status quo through coercion, or what they call the chohas teki koi. So in other words, there seems to be a sense in Tokyo that Chinese reaction was unexpected. As such, it was seen as a rude awakening for Japan. Also, there seems to be a creeping sense of unease at the Chinese military spending and maritime activities. And to an extent, this is nothing new. But nevertheless, this sort of anxiety fueled the notion that China was on to something much more sinister. And perhaps Tokyo's assumption that nationalization was the most sensible thing to do meant that Chinese overreaction, quote unquote, is understood as a proof of China's hostility, reflecting Beijing, Beijing's intention of upsetting the balance of power in the Asia-Pacific region. So in other words, the more Tokyo sends out certain messages to China, and in turn, Tokyo encounters counter-accusations from Beijing, there seems to emerge an understanding within Japanese policy circles that the bilateral relationship is, is deteriorating, and that China's actions increasingly look audacious, dangerous, and dare I say, warmongering. And the more the Japanese policymakers encounter this hostile, again in their view, China, there is a sense, or there seems to be a sense, that Tokyo is now Tokyo feels that it is now under siege, with the result that the Japanese government understands the prevailing reality to be provocative China, and that Tokyo needs to be prepared to deal with this potentially dan- with the, the potentially dangerous consequences. And it seems the pronouncements of policymakers t- seem to bear this out. Uh, the former Foreign Minister Genba Koichiro wrote in the International Herald Tribune in November 2012, claiming that China's maritime activities are a cause for concern. This bit, I guess, is nothing new. China seems to be trying to challenge the status quo, so they're onto something. something. Uh, in response to Chinese accusation that Japan is responsible for the escalation, Genba asks, well, who is actually negating the post-war international order? So there's there is a sense that Gemba is trying to push the blame over onto the onto the Chinese. Abe Shinzo, as a Prime Minister, gave an interview to the Washington Post in February 2013 stating that, amongst other things, China's patriotic education unnecessarily paints a negative picture of Japan. And coupled with this hostility, China is seeking to coerce and intimidate its neighbors in the East and South China Seas. And as such, Japan feels it right that it is its defense budget is to increase. Hadid, he did, and he explicitly pointed out that, yes, he has taken the, he has taken the decision to increase um, but, uh, defense budget, budget uh, in, in, uh, in many years. And furthermore, Abe addressed the Diet um, in the same month, declaring that it is China who is responsible for the escalation of disputes, including the locking of radar on the Japanese vessels. That, was, that happened sort of around that time and he repeated his assertion that his door is always open, that he is open to conversation and he is open to to, uh, to conversation, dialogue, meaning that it is China who is more reluctant to engage in constructive dialogue. So it is China's fault. This is the kind of things that seems to be coming out. Foreign Minister Foreign Minister Kishida Fumio uh, reiterated these points in February 2013 as well, arguing that Japan's diplomacy is in a crisis situation. He used the term "kikiteki jokyo. He also said Japan is responsible for the teri- uh, China is responsible for the territorial infringement. China's opaque military spending is a cause for concern, and that China needs to restrain itself. So what we tend see, seem to see here is this. From the Japanese perspective, the reality out there is one of Chinese provocation, full stop. If the nationalization of Senkaku was seen as a necessary evil, at least in the minds of the Tokyo, uh, in, in, the, in the minds of the Japanese government, Beijing's reaction is interpreted in Tokyo as having some ulterior motives, and the invoking of history by China is seen as the familiar attempt by China to discredit Japan for the sake of it. The reality of a persistently hostile China might be a figment of Japanese policymakers' imagination. Perhaps, if Tokyo backs down, then we might see some sort of see more of a amenable China emerging. Regardless, even if it is a figment of their imagination, Tokyo's imagination, it feels it needs to address increasing and persistent provocation from China. So long as the to- the the, the the, uh, the foreign policy at least in Tokyo feel that for them it becomes a reality. And for if they feel that's the reality, they think they feel they have to um, take action, they have to provide, they have to come up with policies to counter that. And it seems as if Tokyo sees itself as being victimized, as it were, by a concerted campaign by the Chinese to discredit uh, themselves in the international arena. So, there is, seems to be a palpable sense of being wrong by this, again, in, in, in Tokyo. And as a result, the China, Japanese government feels, in, feels it imperative to emphasize how potentially dangerous China is. So, there is a sense that the Japanese government seems resigned to the fact that the situation will linger for some time. I mean, After all, territorial infringements have become a daily event and as such there seems to be a realisation that this too is a new reality of the international life for Japan. Uh, Perhaps it is childish to say this, but this new reality rhymes with the past. The sense of Japan under siege from a hostile Asian neighbourhood surrounded by weak China or weak Korea back then and Russia smacks of the kind of psychological landscape encountered by Japanese policymakers makers at the turn of the previous century. And that those three, China, Korea, and Russia, also seems to feature in Japanese foreign policy discourse now. China is definitely seen as a potential threat. Korea, not so much South Korea, but North Korea definitely is a threat. Then there's that deteriorating relationship between Japan and South Korea. And then there's Russia, the Northern Territories, all these familiar things, plus The opaque military uh, sort of spending in Russia as well, and the sense that the Russians have actually increased military spending over the past few years. Now you might say that this is blatantly obvious, uh, given Japan's geographical location. The point, however, is that Asia remains remains an enigma for Japan, and that China has been, still is, and will be will still be a crucial consideration in Japanese foreign policy. So we can say that the Japanese government seems to sense from all this a downward spiral in its relationship with China, and that this downward spiral has become the new status quo in the bilateral relations. And suffice to say, this is the result of Japan's recent socialization with China, if you could call it a socialization. Hostile relationship is still a form of socialization, precisely because Tokyo learns, as it were, from its interactions with what it perceives to be a hostile and provocative Beijing. So, having seen sort of some of the sort of Japanese pronouncements, uh, let me take a very sort of brief view of the Chinese side of the story as well, just to sort of see the sort of try to in an effort at trying to appreciate sort of the the other half of the of the story, as it were. Um, in a way, in the sense of unfairness, perhaps, or provocation by the other or and the associated need to sort of right the wrongs and tell the international community that we are in the right, they are in the wrong, uh, seems to be like an almost a mirror image of Japan's position. Um, and it seems to be that the war wars have intensified following Abe's inf- ill-informed visit to Yasukuni in December 2013, precipitating a sort of a newish round of rather childish name calling Uh, The Chinese ambassador to the UK, Liu Xiaoming, has been very active uh, over the past year or so, um, appearing in British media, including BBC Newsnight, ITV News, uh, BBC World Service, and the pages of Daily Telegraph. And the kind of things he's been saying is is this, that the islands were taken by the Japanese illegally back in 1895, and hence it is high time China made rightful claims to them. So there is the history card playing in there, and the sort of of discrediting of, of, of Japan. He also says that the issue is about territorial integrity and about sovereignty. I think Japan will agree to that, and Japan is therefore infringing on them. It is Japan's fault. China cannot engage in dialogue when Abe government is unrepentant. So Abe says his door is open, but there's no way that the Chinese government can engage or go through that door if Abe is not willing to listen, if Abe is not willing to talk. China's increased military spending is, in fact, in response to the dangerous neighborhood. Again, a very much mirror image of what we might see from Japan. Because China has been attacked before, um, Liu says there is still a clear military threat coming from Japan. Again, however outlandish it may seem, this might actually be part of the reality. They might say, well, this is China paying lip service or I'm trying to again paint Japan as negative picture. But I think we do need to take these very seriously in order to understand where the Chinese side is coming from. And Liu also said that China is the pacifist country, and it is the Japanese that are dangerously seeking to challenge the status quo. Again, sort of flipping of the tables. And China will never provoke. China has never been provocative. China will never provoke. It is the Japanese that is being provocative. So the sense here is that the reality for China this time around is the unrepentant and provocative Japan that is trying to challenge the post war status quo. Um, a similar, if not more, extreme sentiments are reflected in the pages of the Global Times. Now, to be sure, the Global Times is not tantamount to official pronouncements in China, but I think it's, it provides us with a useful proxy for an officially sanctioned set of narratives. They seem to provide a useful indication of what the Chinese leadership might be thinking, um, as it is more difficult to get hold of. Sort of straightforward Chinese narratives uh, compared to the Japanese ones at times. And looking at some of the language coming out of the Global Times, again, this is just a sort of proxy, as it were, for the kind of officially sanctioned narratives. You get things like that China is getting used to provocations from Japan and that that it is advisable for Japan to remember that it is a small country. Global Times also says that Japan has lost moral grounds and that Japan needs to understand that China will not retreat. The current territorial dispute is a new reality. So as far as the Global Times is concerned, it's really treating it as a new reality, this hostility here. Um, The Global Times also says that China is not inclined to confront Japan, it's peaceful, but the dispute is caused by hardline elements in Japan. Again, this is the new reality that faces Sino-Japanese relations. China and Japan are likely to become long term rivals, and that it is Japan that should be worried about the bilateral relationship. It is Tokyo that has shown no signs of compromise, and if the Abe administration's real intention is to implant the idea of an imminent war in the minds of the public, then China must send the same message to the Chinese public. So, if the Japanese are readying their public for the war, then we are a pacifist country, but China says, well, we have to prepare our public for that as well. And, dragging Ch- and it also says that, the, that dragging China into peripheral conflicts with Japan can provide some illusions to the Japanese public that their country is still powerful. So as we can see, this particular segment of the Chinese public narrative, for lack of better phrase, seems to mirror the Japanese side of the story. Similar to the Japanese story, we can see that the Chinese seem to blame the Japanese for the provocation and that Tokyo is to blame for this, for seeking to upset the post-war status quo. Now, putting aside the actual intentions uh, in not appreciating Tokyo's explanations for nationalization, I think there are many different explanations for why the Chinese side is reacting to the way uh, it is reacting the way it is doing, it seems rather clear that the Chinese narratives treat nationalisation as a blatantly provocative act designed to shame China. Whatever the case may be, it is clear that China seems to have been taken surprise. There seems to be an element of surprise here as well at the Senkaku or Diaoyu issue. Just as Japan seems equally surprised and ill-prepared by the level and degree of, of Chinese reaction, um, now for Tokyo, Chinese reaction remains a surprise precisely because it is not what Tokyo has had sort of expected, as it were. So long as it remains sort of sauteing eye, as it were, for for the Tokyo government, the disappointment that China does not react the way Tokyo expected it to behave will always be a surprise. And as a surprise, it prompts Tokyo to feel the need to become even more assertive, enhancing the vicious circle of invectives between Tokyo and Beijing." So what do we see? Now, yet again, it's it's, it's tempting to suggest that it's all about national interests. I think we we could argue that as well. Otherwise, one has to wonder why both Japan and China are doing what they're actually doing. But to the extent that we can and perhaps should ask what makes them prefer this entrenchment of conflict, we might need to pay attention to the psychological landscape. The economists put it back in December 2013 that it might be what we're really seeing is the case of the Chinese leadership whipping up Japanophobia, using it as a cover for economic reforms while Shinzo Abe stirs uh, Japanese nationalism for similar reasons. Now, while this might be the case, um, my hunch is that the war of wars have become a de facto process of socialization between the two governments, and the downward, that, that, that the downward spiral of deteriorating relationship has become really an incontrovertible reality for the Tokyo government, as well as Beijing. Um, Put another way, even if the economist's analysis is, is correct, it is correct precisely because it makes sense, as it were, for both the Japanese and Chinese leadership uh, to do so under the current climate defined by the downward spiral. As we can see, uh, it seems that Tokyo thinks that China is provocative. Uh, Tokyo thinks that China's refusal to accept this explanation for the nationalization of Senkaku's is stemming from some sinister motives proving China's intentions to upset the balance of power in East Asia. Tokyo is determined to discredit Chinese assertions. Tokyo thinks that the use of history card is a familiar ploy by the Chinese to appeal to the international community. And it seems as if Tokyo also wants to show the international community that it is restrained. It is the one that is restrained. But at the same time, it needs to show China that it is ready to do whatever it takes to protect its territorial integrity. While at the same time, it seems that Beijing thinks that Japan is being provocative. Beijing thinks that Japan's explanation for the nationalization of their use as a, really a mere lip service, perhaps as a patronizing attempt at justifying its intentions to contain China. Beijing, seems, determined to discredit Japanese assertions come what may. Beijing thinks that Japan's use of Chinese military spending as a familiar ploy to spread China threat theory and to discredit China's peaceful rise. And it seems as if Beijing wants to show the international community that it is restrained, but at the same time it needs to show that Japan, it needs to show Japan that it is ready to do whatever it takes to protect its territorial integrity. So the quid pro quo of mutual blame game, as it were, has become the modus operandi of bilateral relations. And this acts as a socialization process in which the entrenchment becomes manifest. And any semblance of compromise it's seen as an act of treachery domestically, at least, even if the logical conclusion is something that both sides might, not, might, might want to avoid. And perhaps that might explain the thawing, not so much the thawing of relations, but the agreement to have some kind of a, of, a dis, uh, of, a, of a conversation next week. So effectively, we are witnessing a Sino-Japanese game of chicken. And this recklessness, it seems, has an an air of appropriateness given the mutual name-calling and the need to re-emphasize uh, one's you know, righteousness. And it is a game of chicken because so much national pride is at at stake in both Japan and China. It is fueled by mutual sense that the other is always to blame, and it has stoke quite a bit of nationalism in both countries, and that makes it even more difficult for the policymakers to back down. So the main diplomatic strategy turns out to how to discredit the other side. Now, considering the downward spiral, it suppose it is not surprising that the relationship has degenerated into PR battle, and ultimately a rather childish name-calling. As I mentioned before, uh, Liu Xiaoming, the, the Chinese ambassador to the UK, wrote in the Daily Telegraph in January this year uh, stating that Japan is mastering its dark arts, that it is a question about how trustworthy Japan actually is, and that there is a danger of Japanese militarism given its reluctance to face up to the past. Hence, Japan is like the Voldemort, the dark wizard in Harry Potter stories. Now, his Japanese counterpart, Hayashi Keiji, also wrote back in the Daily Telegraph a couple of days later, making the point that, well, actually, Japan's maritime forces never harass neighbors. Funny enough, that the UN Charter is ingrained in Japanese foreign policy, just look at Article 9. Although, uh, how how useful that as a signifier now is a bit questionable, perhaps. Uh, He also says that there is an irony when a country that has increased its military spending by more than 10% over the past 20 years should call its neighbor, quote unquote, militarist. So China is the Voldemort. Now that the two mature men felt it proper to invoke Harry Potter in explaining the international politics of Northeast Asia seems to suggest, amongst other things, a level of entrenchment. And this level of entrenchment seems to make this some form of rapprochement difficult, at least in the short term. So again, there's a big question mark over what might happen or what might not happen early next week. So we, we do see an instance in which Tokyo looks at China as the source, source of provocation and vice versa. We also see an instance in which Tokyo seems surprised by Chinese reaction and that is frustrated when their explanation is dismissed as utter nonsense. And again, uh, there seems to be a sort of vice versa uh, element to it. The initial territorial issue has been entrenched to such an extent that the familiar accusations of Chinese military spending and Japanese whitewashing of history are sort of deployed to add gravity to mutual accusations. And when that fails, Harry Potter is employed to add further panache, perhaps mainly for media consumption, but you know, it plays an important role in a PR battle nonetheless. So this quid pro quo is itself a form of socialization in which the reality uh, that's construed is one of intractable, intractable mess caused by the other side, and herein lies um, the very nature of the downward current, the current downward spiral. There is the need to justify one's position, uh, necessarily involves discrediting, if not belittling, the other's claims. That seems to appear in the, the, the mutual name calling. And the similar need to win the hearts and minds, or the similar sort of need in the minds of Tokyo policy elites as well as the Chinese, as, their, as, their, as, their, as well as their Chinese counterparts, uh, of of the, nece- of the necessity to sort of win the hearts and minds of the international community means that world wars becomes almost personal at the at the level of foreign policy envoys, and this gives the impression that in both Tokyo and Beijing, that there seems to be no way out of this mess. So having said all this, what are the limits of this approach? As I said at the outset, this is really a work in progress. So there are some very crude elements to this. But nevertheless, I think there are limits to this approach. The first of all, there is the methodological issue. For me, getting hold of the Japanese government pronouncements is the easier bit. Uh, Getting hold of the Chinese counterpart becomes a bit difficult at times. And there are limitations. So sometimes I do rely on the global times, but there are problems in using that as a sort of a platform to garner the sense of what the Chinese are thinking. Um, So needless to say, this potential discrepancy between the Japanese and Chinese accounts is something that sort of needs ironing out. Secondly, there is always an element of second guessing the intentions behind what policymakers are thinking. Now, I mentioned, I mentioned several times that there is a need to peer into the psychological landscape shared within the foreign policy-making circles to provide a more interesting story, as it were, to the, the Sino-Japanese downward spiral. Uh, while doing so, again, provides us with interesting um, and ultimately a useful uh, uh, insight, it remains a guesswork at best. And there are, I do need to work out how exactly to overcome this issue. I think that, I mean, there are solutions to this, of course, like conducting interviews, the more sort of formal, in-depth interviews. But this is sort of a limitation or a constraint, nonetheless. And finally, there's always um, the so what question. Whenever you mention something about the theoretical things and how you apply that to sort of practice, there's always the so what question. And again, invoking national interests as a driving factor might be tempting. Um, again, I suppose my answer to the so what question might be to say that well, if we are to fully appreciate Japanese government's sense of frustration at all this, then national interest simply does not help explain me, does not help me explain this. The sense of entrenchment that the Tokyo government seems to feel, let alone the seeming sense of Japan that is under siege from its foreign neighbors, and these are the kind of things that we can sort of see from Japanese foreign policy pronouncements. Uh, cannot be fathomed from a rather superficial um, analysis. For me, trying to delve into the psychological landscape or worldviews, if you wanted to call it that, uh, provides an interesting insight into the sort of worldviews and realities that the foreign policy makers um, experience. And again, it helps to sort of uh, provide a more interesting insight into rather sort of bland sort of a landscape. Um, provided by sort of a more traditional rational choice approaches as it were and as a result it helps in providing an additional dimension to understanding the current deterioration in japan's relations with china again if you really want to ask why is it that the the bilateral relations have deteriorated so much i think we need to, to start peering into the minds of policymakers to give us a better picture so in lieu of conclusion um I guess I'd like to venture a little bit into the media reports about the possible thawing of relations. Um, As I said at the outset, there is an APEC meeting going on right now, and the speculation is whether or not there will be a meeting between Abe Shinzo and Xi Jinping during the Economic Leaders' Meeting on the 10th and 11th, that's next Monday and Tuesday. Currently, the speculation is that there will be a meeting. The Japanese government said on the seventh, um, that's today, that even there is a possibility that they, or that they are the two governments are committed to improving relations. And therefore, Japan and China watchers are seeing that as an indication that there will be some kind of a meeting going. That's some kind of a meeting, or even a handshake, or just a bumping into one another in the corridors might go on sometime next week. Uh, and most China and Japan watchers are, sort of will be considering that as a milestone, as it were, in the current relationship. Um, yet it is also the case that Zin Kwa noted that there are conditions to be met, uh, including the familiar thing about the wartime past, Japan needs to uh, be forthright about its war crimes and so forth and so on, and that Japan needs to admit that there is a territorial dispute. Now, we also know from Japanese media reports that Abe is ready to admit that there are differences in opinion, this, I think it was Mainichi that reported this. Um, I'm not too sure if it was substantiated or not. There seems to be a sense that Abe might actually say that there are differences. Now, I do not really know how best to read this. Tokyo will interpret this as simply saying that there are differences, otherwise we wouldn't be in this situation. China will say, aha, Tokyo has actually admitted that Senkaku's DLUs are a territorial issue. Let's talk about it. So there are going to be different interpretations. Again, as I, I, I don't really know how best to read this, um, but it can be construed as a climb down on the part of Tokyo. So how do I rec- uh, reconcile this with the downward spiral? Um, I guess one way to look at it is that the leaders, both Abe and Xi Jinping, are rational enough to realize that the downward spiral has a rather dangerous potential conclusion to it. There are uh, people are worried about accidental clashes. And there is a, again a speculation that in the meeting they might actually talk about a hotline or some kind of a dialogue between the the naval uh, between the two navies. Uh, again, agreeing to discuss this issue is not the same as actually discussing it. So again, we don't really know. Um, and again, stupid things might come out of Japanese politicians after the meeting, in which case again, the meeting is really worth nothing. Uh, uh, you know, so there is the, that potential downward, sort of a downside to it as well. Um, but again, if you are going to cons- consider Abe's sort of purported words um, as a potential climb down, uh, the recent visit by, to Beijing by the former prime minister Fukuda Yasuo can also be seen as Tokyo sending out in a feeler as sort of an attempt to do just that. So we need to see what really happens at the bumping in, and to see how what it looks like. And of course, there is, just as in the apology issue, there is have to be some kind of a backlash coming from the conservatives in Japan. Uh, so again, because this is a very sensitive issue, and as I sort of mentioned before, uh, what looks like a compromise from you know if you take a step back and if you look at both sides agreeing to have a discussion. Uh, it looks like a compromise, but potentially and domestically, both in Japan and China, this could be seen as a concession that one is giving to the other. So, there is a very, politically, it's very sensitive. Again, I don't really know how to read Xi Jinping's sort of intention in agreeing to sort of have a talk. Uh, but again, um, one thing we can say is that there seems to be a sense that Tokyo and Beijing are both coming to understand that there is an inherent danger in how this socialization process of downward spiral might end. And it seems as though if both sides are rational enough to say, let's see what might come out of this sort of bumping game. Again, thank you very much.